open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4 is where we're going to be together this morning. My grandmother uh, loved to play dominoes. One of my Thanksgiving memories is going to her house and always having the dominoes out. And I do not love math. And I think you have to be good at math to be good at dominoes. And so I never really got into the game very much. But I did enjoy lining them up in her kitchen table and I would create all kinds of designs with those dominoes. And I always enjoyed tipping the first one and then watching those, all the other dominoes fall. We call that the domino effect. The domino effect has become a metaphor uh, that we use in our society just to describe a chain reaction. One event that sets off a series of other connected events. That's really what's happening in Genesis chapter three and chapter four. We see a domino effect that's caused by Adam and Eve's sin against God in the Garden of Eden. They choose to rebel against God. We call it the fall. And then everything that happens after that decision to rebel against God is a fall out. It is a consequence. It is a chain reaction that begins to happen. Adam and Eve experience alienation in their relationship with God. And so too, because of our sin, we are alienated from God because of our sin. That's really what Genesis 3 is about, mankind's alienation from God. But then the next domino to fall is mankind's alienation with other people. And that's what Genesis 4 is about. We see the first human murder that happens in Genesis chapter 4. And you, so you find that, that people are not just alienated from God, people are alienated from one another. And so just to trace the trajectory of the book of Genesis so far, the story begins with creation. God creates the world. He puts Adam and Eve into it to live under his kingly rule. But then you have the crash. That's, that's the fall. That's where Adam and Eve decide to rebel against God, to reject his rulership in their life, which then brings a curse. God curses the serpent. He curses Eve. He curses Adam. He curses mankind. But then as you come to Genesis chapter four, things degenerate into chaos. You see worsening sin. You see deepening, darkening patterns of rebellion. Genesis chapter four tells us uh, the story of the descendants of Adam and Eve, the, the next generation to come, and really focuses in on the, the, the uh, birth of a man named Cain, which is Adam and Eve's firstborn son, and his relationship to his younger brother, a man named Abel, Adam and Eve's second-born son. So this chapter is really about the relationship between Cain and Abel. In 11 verses, the word brother is repeated seven times, which is to draw our attention to the, to the relationship between the two brothers. And, and the, the chapter just goes back and forth between what's happening with Cain and what's happening with Abel and really showing the difference between those two brothers in terms of how they interact with God, how they love God, how they worship God. So this is really a story of a contrast between two ways of relating to God. So let's look at it together. We're going to look at the entire chapter this morning. It's going to take about an hour and a half. So we better get started. All right. Verse one, it says, the man was intimate with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have possessed a male child with the Lord. And she also gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now, Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Now, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard 
for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious and he looked despondent. So the first couple of verses here introduce us to these two brothers. The, the first, Cain, his name means possession. That's what the word Cain means. And it's a play on words with verse one, where Eve says, I have possessed a male child with the Lord's help. That's Cain's name. His brother, Abel, the, the word Abel comes from the Hebrew word havel, which means breath or vapor, likely indicating that Abel's life is gonna be short like a breath, like a vapor. It's here one moment, then it's gone the next. Uh, the word havel is a onomatopoeia. Students, y'all remember that from English class? An onomatopoeia is a word that means what it, like what it sounds like. It sounds like what its, what its meaning is. So you can hear havel. It's just like a breath. It's just like oh, a vapor. It's here one moment, it's gone the next. That's, that's Abel. He's gonna have a very short lifespan. Now, the brothers are contrasted in these first five verses in three ways. We say, see a contrast between their vocation. We, we see a contrast between their devotion to the Lord. And then we see a contrast between the Lord's evaluation of their devotion. So, so look, first of all, in verse 2, their, their vocation is contrasted. We're told in verse 2 that Abel was a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. That means that Abel was a shepherd and Cain was a farmer. Now, what's interesting about that verse, I think that the author is trying to give you a subtle way of understanding the differences between these two brothers. Cain is associated as a worker of the ground. That should remind you of Genesis chapter 3. You remember Genesis chapter 3? Adam, part of Adam's curse, the curse of sin, is that he's going to have to work the ground and that would be toilsome work. There'd be sweat and labor and, uh, and there would be thorns and so forth. And so I think the author is telling you uh, that Cain is a worker of the ground as almost just a hint, a subtle reminder of the curse. Cain here is being associated in some way with the curse of sin. Abel, on the other hand, is a shepherd of flocks. And if you're an Israelite reading this story for the first time, you know the people who work with flocks are priests, right? Priests are those who work with sheep, they work with flocks, they bring lambs as offerings of worship. And so it's likely that the author is trying to associate Abel with the work of priests and working with sheep. And priests in the Old Testament were known for their their great devotion to the Lord. Priests were people who, who their life was just centered around God. And so it's likely that the author here is trying to get you to associate in your mind, Cain is sort of associated with the curse of sin, this curse of having to work the ground. Abel is associated with the work of priests, priests who would be highly devoted to God, who would love the Lord above all else. And actually that's gonna typify both Cain and Abel. You're gonna see that uh, characterization carried out in, in their lives as the author in verses three and four contrasts not just their vocation, but their devotion. And you see that here in verses three and four. It's a description here of the offerings that Cain and Abel bring to the Lord. And I want you to notice in verse three and verse four, there's a repetition of two words, the, the word presented and the word offering. Do you see it in verse three? In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. There it is. And then verse four, and Abel also presented, there it is, an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Those two words, presented and offering, 
are used in the book of Leviticus to describe the work of priests in offering sacrifices of worship. They would present a sacrifice. They would offer something to the Lord in worship. So the scene that we have here with Cain and Abel is these are two brothers who are offering worship to God. Two brothers who are bringing sacrifices to God. Two brothers who are presenting something to the Lord in the context of worship. And the author of Genesis holds up these two brothers for us to look at, to examine their life. It's almost two paradigms, two ways of living, two different paths of how you can relate to God or what your worship of God might look like. And this is something, I was thinking about this in the middle of the night. I woke up at about three o'clock in the morning. I was chewing on this one. The author of Genesis does this throughout the book of Genesis. The whole book of Genesis could almost be organized on the contrasts that it presents for us. Two ways to live. Think about it. Uh, You have Noah, who was righteous, and you have the people who were wicked. You have Abraham, and you have Lot. You have Isaac, you have Jacob. You have Joseph, and you have Joseph's brothers. Here you have Cain, and you have Abel. All of these contrasts, it's like the author is just presenting before all of us two different ways to live. You can live with God at the center of your life, or you can live with you at the center of your life. Amen? Those are the two ways to live. You can live where the entire orientation of your life is centered in God, or you can live where the entire orientation of your life is centered in you. And so Cain and Abel stand as two options for us today, and we see how they approach the Lord in worship, and it could not be more different. Cain and Abel, when they come to worship the Lord, it is like two different directions in which they are walking. Look at the description of their offerings in worship. Abel, for instance, in verse 4, it says, Abel presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. All right, so I want you, if you take notes, I want you to circle or underline the word firstborn and the word fat. He brings the first and he brings the fat. Here's what Abel is doing. Abel is bringing his choicest, juiciest sheep to offer to the Lord. He is bringing his first, that's firstborn. He is bringing his best. That's the fat portions. You say that, what what does that mean to bring the fat portions? Well, I learned about this when I was uh, pastoring my first full-time church in direct Texas outside of Paris. There was a sweet lady who slaughtered a fattened calf for our family and brought it as a Christmas present, this whole like side of beef. And she starts telling me about the steaks and she tells me about how, how great the marbling is in the steaks. Who knows what marbling is in a steak, all right? I had no idea, but I learned about it. Marbling in a steak is where it's full of fat. There's tons of fat still in there so that when you pop that steak on the grill, that begins to melt into that steak and it makes it juicy, it makes it tender, it makes it flavorful. Who's ready for lunch? <laughs> the fat marbling into that meat, it's the, this is the Andrew Standard translation of the fat portions. He brought the good stuff. Abel brings God his first and his best. He brings the good stuff. He brings the firstborn and the fat portions. Can we say the first and the best together? The first and the best. What does God deserve in our worship? He deserves the first and the best. But now look at the way, by way of contrast, look at Cain's offering. Verse three, in the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. 
So Abel brings the firstborn of the flock and their fat portions, and Cain brings plain old veggies. Some of the land's produce. Now, we're told God did not have regard for that. Now, that does not mean that God didn't love veggies, although that's probably also true. (laughs) What's unique here? Well, notice the glaring lack of adjectives. Abel's offering is vivid in its description, a firstborn sheep and its fat portions. With Cain, all of that description is absent. He just brings some. He just brings some, he just brings some veggies. He doesn't bring the first. He doesn't bring the best. He just brings some. Abel offers the very best that he has to God. Cain brings plain old veggies, a sense of just mediocre leftovers. Not the first and the best, but the last and the least. Plain old some. God does not want to be worshipped this way. God wants our first and our best in every area of our life. Can you imagine trying to explain to someone you love how much you love them? If you try to explain to someone how, how much you love them, you really put forethought and intentionality in ex- explaining that. Like when you get uh, engaged to be married, you come to the girlfriend that you love, you want to spend the rest of your life, you want to be extravagant. You want to have thought the engagement out. You want to have made plans. You want to have spent all the money on the engagement ring. And all the ladies in the house said, amen, right? You want, you want your boyfriend to really go all out to express the extravagance of his love for you. You don't want the boyfriend to say, you know, I kind of like you. And I'd like to spend the rest of my life. I didn't really think it through, and I don't have the money to buy a ring, but I do have a rubber band. And if you'll just wear that on your wrist, it'll remind you that you're going to be forever mine. And you'd say, bye, Felicia. (laughs) You want somebody to go all out to show the extravagance of their love. It's the same way in our worship. God doesn't want your last and your least and your leftovers. He wants your first and your best. Someone has said that the quality of the offering reflected the condition of the heart. And if that's true, if Abel brings the very best to God, it's because his heart was full of love for God. He wanted to sacrifice greatly because he loved God greatly. On the other hand, Cain's lackluster, mediocre offering reflected a heart that was bored and unenamored and disinterested and cold toward God. I read a book this week that said that if Satan can't get you to doubt God, he'll get you to try to be bored with God. And here, Cain offers mediocre leftovers. So look at how... The author contrasts God's evaluation of their offerings. You see it in verses 4 and 5. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he did not have regard. Literally in Hebrew, it says the Lord gazed at Abel, but did not gaze at Cain. The Lord looked at Cain and his offering. He just kept looking at it. He didn't give Cain a second glance. The the picture here is that the Lord accepted the one, 
not the other. He was pleased with the one, not with the other. Folks, that tells us something very important, that God is pleased when we hold him in high regard. He will regard that. When we hold him in low regard, reflected in our mediocre, lackluster worship and our offerings that we bring to him, he does not regard that. When the offering that we bring to him is an offering of great sacrifice, of great devotion, when we regard him like that, the Lord is pleased with what we bring him when we bring him our first and our best. So let me ask you this question. Do you sacrifice for God's glory? What's the level of your devotion to God? Do you have the heart of Cain or the heart of Abel? Do you love God so much that you give him the first and the best in every area of your life? Or are you more like Cain who offers insincere, sloppy, shoddy, half-hearted worship? <clears throat> Someone has said that whereas the one worshiper went out of his way to please God, the other simply discharged a duty. When you think about living for God, worshiping God, bringing an offering to God, does that sound like something that's a delight for you or simply discharging a duty? Are you, are you bringing God your first and best or your last and your least and your leftovers? <clears throat> You've heard about the difference between what the pig and the chicken bring to breakfast. You know, the pig has to sacrifice it all. The chicken just makes a contribution. How about you in your life? You sacrifice it all to the Lord. You say, Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord. Take my, take my hands, take my feet, take my eyes, take my mouth, take my ears, take my heart, take my loves. Do you say to the Lord, you've got all of me. I'm giving you my first and my best. How about in the area of your possessions? Does God own it all? The area of your tithe, does God own it all? Do you give him your first and your best? How about the area of your affections, your treasure, the things that you love in life? Would you say that you love God above all else, or are there other loves that you love more? You know, I'm passionate about a lot of things in my life, and if you spend some time with me, you'll know the things I'm passionate about. I'm passionate about the most beautiful woman in the world, my wife, Amy. I'm passionate about the four most delightful children a man can have, Jenna, Austin, McKenzie, and Brooklyn. I am passionate about Texas Longhorns football. I am passionate about Houston Astros baseball. I, I am passionate. I am passionate about Bluebell ice cream. Can I get a witness? <clears throat> there, are, there are things that I'm passionate about. And if you're around me long enough, those passions will rub off. I will try to convert you to be a Bluebell fan and an Astros fan and a Longhorns fan. And you'll know what I love. I want to love God so much that you would know that he's what I'm most passionate about. Is God, is God the center of what you treasure the most? Do the people who are around you, would they say, that person is very passionate among all the other things that they're passionate about. The thing that they're most passionate about is God. That's what it means for him to have our first and our best. How about our aspirations in life? That is what we give ourselves to, our time, how we spend our time, the talents that we steward. Our telos, the ultimate reason for being in our life, would, would, could that be described as being entirely for God, giving Him in our first and our best, in our family, in our career, in, in our thought life? And I think the first lesson to learn from Cain's life is that we should sacrifice 
for God's glory. God deserves it all. Amen? Here's the second thing I want you to see in this text, and that is that not only we should sacrifice for God's glory, but we ought to also be willing to submit to God's correction in our lives. Because Cain has made a mistake here. Cain has offered lackluster worship, and God is going to correct that. God is going to call him to account. God is going to call him to repent. And what he ought to do is submit to that, as should we. Let's look at what happens. Look at, look at what happens here in uh, verse 5. Let's see how Cain uh, responds to God's evaluation. God regards Abel's offering. He does not regard Cain's offering. Look at what Cain says, uh, Cain does in verse 5. Cain was furious and he looked despondent. Furious and despondent. That means he was mad, then he was sad. He was mad. Maybe at Abel, maybe at God, maybe at both. And then he became sad. He was despondent. Literally in Hebrew, his countenance fell. The picture of depression there. There's a sense of disappointment. Cain is disappointed with the consequences of his own choices. Maybe there's even some envy and jealousy here, seems to be with what happens next in the story. Have you ever wanted the blessing that other people seem to have? Don't raise your hand. You've seen God blessing someone else and you've been pretty envious that they seem to have the favor that you don't have? Here it looks like Cain has been passed over and someone else has gotten the blessing. Now that shouldn't have been surprising to Cain because Cain, as a farmer, understood a simple concept. The concept is you reap what you sow. You, you sow a little, you reap how much? A little. You sow a lot, you reap a lot. Cain sowed little in his worship and he reaped little. He reaped what he sowed. Abel sowed a lot. And he reaped the blessing. He reaped a lot. Cain should have known that. And yet he didn't associate that in his own life. So God speaks to him in verses 6 and 7 to correct him. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It's desires for you, but you must rule over it. This is a call to repentance from God. God is saying, Cain, you have messed up. You have not done what is right, and therefore I have not regarded what you have brought. But if you will change, if you will amend your approach, if you will change your ways, if you will turn around, if you will repent and do what is right, then you'll be accepted as well. Your sin has been crouching at the door, desiring to rule over you, but you must rule over it. That's what God is calling Cain to do. He is calling him to repent. He is calling him to put his sin to death. He is calling him to rule over the sin that has been ruling over him, which is what God calls us to do when we're caught in our sin as well. When sin is dominating you, what does Paul tell us in Colossians? Put it away, put it off, put it to death. The great Puritan theologian John Owen said, you better be killing your sin or your sin will be killing you. And that's what God is telling Cain. He's saying, if you will repent, I'll accept what you bring. Now, if God calls Cain to repent, what should Cain do? Repent, right? If God calls you to repent, what should you do? Repent. This is a clear call 
for Cain to change. And here's the thing. He could have repented and he should have repented. It's not too late for Cain at this point in the story. When God calls him out, his response should be humble repentance. But instead, Cain goes deeper into his sin. And the rest of the chapter shows a worsening pattern. Instead of mastering his sin, his sin is going to master him. He's going to be like David, who when he was caught in adultery with Bathsheba, instead of repenting, made it worse by committing murder. And here, Cain allows his sin to degenerate into a murderous rage. Look at what happens beginning in verse 8. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. First human murder. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know. He replied, am I my brother's keeper? Interesting, it's the same word used in Genesis 2 when God tells Adam to keep the garden. He was given a sacred task to keep, and now he says, I'm not my brother's keeper. Verse 10, then he said, what have you done? The Lord is saying this to Cain. Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood that you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. So here the, the punishment for Cain is even more so than the punishment for Adam. You remember the punishment for Adam is you'll work the ground and it will be difficult. Now to Cain, whose sin was even worse than Adam's, God says, you're going to work the ground and it won't even give anything, even if you work it with toil. And you will be a restless wanderer on the earth, like Adam who was expelled from the garden, banished into exile. Now Cain will follow his father into exile, banished as a restless wanderer. But Cain answered the Lord, and he answers with self-pity. Instead of owning his sin here and humbly repenting, he responds with self-pity by saying, my punishment is too great to bear because you're banishing me today from the face of the earth and I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord replied to him, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Very interesting. Even in the midst of judgment, here's God's grace. Just like in the Garden of Eden, as he banishes Adam and Eve, he also provides clothing for them, a mark or a token of grace in the midst of judgment. And then verse 16, then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let me just point out a couple of things about this. The author wants you to be thinking about the fact that this is a heinous crime. He repeats the word brother again and again. In verses 8 through 11, he says it twice in verse 8, twice in verse 9, once in verse 11, once in verse 12. He's trying to get you to realize this is an unthinkable crime, to kill a brother. And then notice the parallels here between Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. Think about it. Genesis 4 begins with the creation of a man, right? Eve says, I've acquired a man. I've possessed a man, a male child with the Lord. So you have the creation of a man. Then you have the decision of the man to rebel. And then the story ends at the end of chapter 4 with banishment, with exile, with Cain fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And which direction does he flee? What does it say in the text? Verse 16, 
He goes to the land of Nod, and I know you all you know your Bible geography, right? Where's Nod? I wouldn't know unless the text told us, east of Eden. Do you remember when Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden? To which direction did they go? East. So you see like almost a reenactment of the creation and the fall. Man is created, man rebels, and then God, a man flees from the presence of God. Cain is experiencing the sin of his father. He is following in his father's footsteps. Moving further and further from the presence of God. And by the way, things go from bad to worse as the rest of the chapter unfolds. I don't have enough time to unpack what's happening in verses 17 through 24, but let me just point out one thing. Verses 17 through 24, as Cain flees from God's presence to the east, just like Adam and Eve flee from the garden, verses 17 through 24 describes the descendants of Cain. You have a list of of his children and grandchildren and so forth. And one particular descendant, the author of Genesis highlights him for us. His name is Lamech. And Lamech, we're told, follows in Cain's footsteps in that he becomes a murderer as well. Apparently, something happens in Lamech's life where a young boy hit him. And he responds by killing that child. And then he writes a song boasting about it. That's what you see in verses 23 and 24. Let's read it. 23, Lamech said to his wives, let's just stop there, by the way. Lamech is not just a murderer. He's also the first bigamist in the Bible, two wives. First time you have that happening in the Bible. Two wives, Ada and Zillah. He said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, pay attention to my words For I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. It reminds me of the Johnny Cash song. You know, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. That's Lamech's attitude. He punched me, I killed him. He struck me, I struck him dead. Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech, it will be 77 times. It's poet. It's a poem right here in the middle of chapter four. Do you see what's happening? Things are going from bad to worse. You get a sense of downward movement, of a degenerating pattern. Things are devolving into chaos. For the first time, you have a man marrying two women. That's bigamy. But you also have brutality, a man who kills a boy and then writes a song about it. Do you see the worsening pattern through the generations from Cain all the way down to Lamech? Think about the the progression from Genesis 3 to Genesis 4. In Genesis 3, Adam's sin was eating a forbidden fruit. Cain's sin is even worse, murdering a brother. Then Lamech's sin is even worse than that. He murders a child and then brags about it and writes a song. That's the degenerating, downward movement, devolving pattern that's happening in the story of humanity in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. Things devolving into chaos. This is Cain's spiritual legacy. So catch what's happening here, folks. God corrects Cain, but instead of repentance... He responds with further rebellion, and it affects the generations to come. Do you realize you're leaving a spiritual legacy? Do you realize that the generations to come will be affected by your choice of whether to repent or to rebel? 
What could have happened if Cain would have responded to God's corrective voice with humility and with repentance? How might his family tree have been changed? But instead, when God corrects him, he responds by being angry and depressed. He responds with envy. He responds with a failure to take responsibility for his sin. He responds with pride and rebellion and murder and self-pity that leads to a family legacy of worsening sin with Lamech. Which, by the way, if you continue to read in the book of Genesis, it just gets worse from here. If you think your family's messed up at Thanksgiving, read Genesis. It's like a soap opera. Things just get worse and worse. What could have been different with Cain's family legacy had he just responded with humility to God's correction in his life? You know, some of you watched the SpaceX launch yesterday. I'm fascinated by all things space. I think it's super cool. I was watching a video this week uh, about the rockets that NASA will test before sending them into space. Recently, they tested a rocket booster for Artemis 9, and uh, they just tested that rocket for two minutes. And, and in two minutes, they were at this desert test site. In two minutes, that rocket produced more than 3.6 million pounds of thrust. In two minutes, it's, it reached a temperature of 3,700 degrees Fahrenheit. It was so hot that the desert sand hardened to glass. Listen, God's correction can either melt or it can harden. Cain's heart, when God corrected him, his heart should have melted. It should have softened towards the Lord, leading to repentance. His heart should have submitted to God's correction, but instead his heart hardened and his sin worsened and he left a shameful legacy as a result. Let me ask you, when God sends his corrective voice into your life, do you submit to God's correction? Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines those he loves. And one of the signs that you love God is that when he disciplines you, when he corrects you, that you respond by melting instead of hardening, that you submit to that correction, that you yield instead of continuing on in willful sin. When God calls you out, soften towards it, be humble towards it, be willing to repent, be willing to say, God, you're right, I have done wrong. You're right, I need to change and be willing to change your path. Otherwise, you will have the legacy of Cain, a legacy through Lamech of worsening sin and murderous rage and boastful pride. What you have by the time you get to verse 24 is just utter chaos on the scene. But even in the midst of that chaos, God gives humanity a second chance. That's the last thing I want you to see in this text before we close our Bibles this morning. I want you to see that even in the devolving, degenerating, downward movement, that God and his gracious purposes for humanity will still prevail. I want you to notice what happens in verses 25 and 26. And if I had another 30 minutes, I'd love to unpack about five things about these two verses. I'm instead just point out one. Look at verse 25. Adam was intimate with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him, let's say this together, Seth. 
Seth is going to become important in what happens next. For she said, God has given me another, let's say it together, offspring, key word right there, in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. And a son was born to Seth also, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, look at this, people began to call on the name of the Lord. When you come to verse 24, you have Cain's descendant Lamech murdering a child, boasting about it. Things are very dark. And you could expect in verse 25 to see something about God just wiping humanity out. That's what we deserve, basically, at this point of the story. In the midst of all this chaos, you expect God's judgment to come. And if you're an Israelite and you're reading the story at this particular point, you might be wondering, is God still going to be gracious to his people? And the answer is yes. Even in the midst of mankind's sin, even in the midst of humanity's devolving, degenerating sin, God's purposes of grace still endure. And you see that by God creating life again. Verses 1 through 24 is man destroying life. But verses 25 and 26 is God creating life again. God bringing another son named Seth. And there's a key word right there in verse 25. It's the word offspring. Now that should remind you of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, which we looked at last week. You remember Genesis 3, 15? God is cursing the serpent and part of the curse is a promise. He says, I am going to give Eve... What? An offspring. And that offspring, that special descendant is going to one day, you remember what it says? Crush the skull of the serpent. That's a promise. God says, one day, I'm going to give you a descendant, and that descendant, that offspring, is going to destroy the serpent. And then you get chapter 4, where things go from bad to worse. First human murder, the murder of a child, a song being written about it. And you might be wondering, well, is God going to take his promise back? God's promised an offspring. Has mankind's sin gotten so bad that God will revoke his covenant promises? I think that's why the author is so kind to put verse 25 here, because verse 25 is the author's way of telling you that even though mankind's sin is getting darker and darker, God's redeeming grace and his redemptive promises still stand. And God's promise to bring an offspring is not going to be revoked. Here's the thing. You cannot out God's grace. That's a good place for an amen. You cannot out God's grace. God has made redemptive promises in Genesis 3. Mankind's sin gets worse in Genesis 4, but Genesis 4 by, ends by saying... God's redemptive promise still stands. God is still going to send an offspring. God is still going to bring redeeming grace. God is still going to come through in his covenant. Just because mankind has failed doesn't mean God is going to fail his promises. Though man's sin is dark, God's grace is deeper than our sin. And we cannot out the grace of God. And so here's a promise. I'm going to give you Seth. And through Seth will come an offspring a special offspring. And it ends on a hopeful note. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. What a place of, of ending the chapter. It's ending with hope, not hopelessness. It's ending with God's grace. God reminding his people, I've not forgotten my promise. I am going to bring that offspring. And guess what? It would be the, through the line of Seth that that special offspring would come. Because if you 
continue to follow the family tree through Seth. You follow it all the way down to the New Testament to Luke chapter 3. You find out that one of the great, 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 great grandsons of Seth is named Jesus. And Jesus would be the fulfillment of the promises of God. Jesus would be the special offspring who would bring redeeming grace. Jesus would be one who, like Abel, would faithfully tend his flock and be fully devoted to God and yet be murdered by his brothers. His innocent blood, like the innocent blood of Abel, would also be shed. The Bible tells us that Jesus' innocent blood actually cries out just like Abel's innocent blood cries out from the ground. Do you remember the weird verse in verse 10? God says, Abel's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Abel's blood is speaking a word. Did you know that Jesus' blood speaks a word as well? You say, Pastor, where are you getting that? I'm getting that from Hebrews 12 and verse 24. Look at what God's word says. We've come to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to his sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. Literally, his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? Well, the voice of Abel's blood crying out from the ground is a voice of accusation. It cries out to God from the ground about what Cain had done. Innocent blood crying out about guilt. Abel's blood shouts, guilty. It shouts, condemnation. It shouts, accusation. Abel's blood cries out from the ground saying, look at how Cain has sinned. But that's not the word that Jesus' blood cries out. Jesus, tender of the sheep, fully devoted to God, murdered by his brothers, innocent blood shed. The word that Jesus' blood speaks is forgiven. It shouts grace. Abel's blood says, look at how Cain has sinned. Jesus' blood says, look at how their sin is covered by my blood. It would be through Seth that this one would come. And his shed blood would cover over our guilt, which means that even in such a dark chapter, there's a reminder of God's grace here. You see deepening sin in Genesis 4, but you also see deepening grace. And so let me ask you this question as we close our time together in God's word. Do you savor God's grace? Is it precious to you? Are God's redemptive promises something that you relish and love? A lot of us are going to go to a big Thanksgiving meal on Thursday, and we're going to sit at a table. We're going to eat all the things and we're gonna push back and we're gonna to wanna to eat more. We're not gonna to wanna to get up from that table. We're just gonna to wanna to sit and soak and enjoy. Some of you are having fried turkey, hallelujah. 
Some of you are having turducken. Can I get a witness? You're going to have stuffing and dessert and pie, and you're going to want to sit there and just mm, enjoy it, savor it, relish it, not move beyond it. You won't want to get up. You just want to sit there and stuff your face with grandma's cooking. That's what it means to savor something. Do you savor the grace of God like that? Just relish it, enjoy it. I don't want to get up. I don't want to move beyond this. I, I just want to sit and soak in the grace of God. I, I want to just delight in this one who is a true and better able and what he's done for me. That's what it means to savor the grace of God. And when you savor God's grace like that, you're going to respond to that with great devotion and sacrifice. You're going to respond with the heart of Abel to say, God, you love me so much. You've given me your firstborn. And so I'm going to respond by giving you my first and my best. Amen? Let's bow together. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, we do not want you to leave this place without coming to know Christ as Savior. At the end of our service, I'm gonna be in the hospitality room just out these back doors. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you wanna talk about what it means to enjoy God's grace for yourself, to have your sin forgiven, then you come out and talk to me. And I'd love to visit with you about that today. If you are a Christian today, is there sin in your life that has been confronted? Submit to God's corrective voice. Is there a matter of devotion where you need to sacrifice something, the first and the best in some area of your life for God's glory? Then you sacrifice for him. Jesus, we want you to be the center of our lives. Help us to have the heart of Abel. Empower it by your spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.